The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. You know, you have people really uneasy about Indonesia's economic future, rising costs of living, uh, and a younger generation who are facing uh, really uncertain and precarious job markets. No candidate really has a clear plan to deal with that, but I do think that those things will be in people's minds and hopefully might shape the debates as we, we get closer to the elections. I think that by the time the candidates are chosen, they will have become so compromised by the process that in the end, whatever the debate in the election, whoever is chosen will be locked into this system, like it or not. And I think that reflects the difficulty any politician in Indonesia will have in acting freely within this system of money, politics and political alliances. In this episode, jostling for position in the race to be Indonesia's next president. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia's presidential elections may be well over a year away, but it's already game on in a big way for the lineup of presidential hopefuls. The actual vote won't happen until February 2024, but the manoeuvring and number crunching required to win the country's leadership means the nation's political machine is already in high gear. So who are the big names throwing their hats into the ring? Two-time loser to President Joko Widodo, Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto has been given the green light by his party, Gurindra, for a third tilt at Indonesia's top job. Although under national election laws, he still needs to secure the support of one or more other parties to win the right to contest the election. So how is that likely to shape his platform and messaging during the campaign? Jokowi's own party, PDIP, appears to be deciding between lower house speaker Puan Maharani, daughter of party chair and former president Megawati Sukarnaputri, and the popular governor of central Java, Ganja Pranowo. The question is whether the PDIP's nomination will be based on popularity or whether loyalty to the Sukarno family will take precedence. Meanwhile, as Indonesia's huge Muslim population becomes increasingly conservative, what sort of influence will Islamist organisations have on the election? Joining me over Zoom are Indonesia watchers and regular guests on the program, Professor Tim Lindsay from the Melbourne Law School and Dr Ian Wilson from Murdoch University. A very warm welcome to you, Tim, and to you, Ian. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Ali. Well, as we said, the, the presidential election is not until February 2024, well over a year away. So, Tim, I know you've just returned from Indonesia. Why are we talking about this poll uh, so far out? Why is, is Indonesia so fixated on it? Well, I think you have to understand that Indonesia is a democracy, but actually it's really an oligarchy with elections. So... The elections determine which particular enormously wealthy tycoons and the political groups around them will get control of the political system in Indonesia. And that means that whoever wins will have control over power and wealth for the next five years and perhaps if they're re-elected for 10 years. So because the current president, Joko Widodo, can't run again, despite the wishes of some of his supporters. This means that 
the election, which is actually on Valentine's Day, will alter the configuration of power and money amongst the elite in Indonesia. And that makes it extraordinarily important. And so we have the elites now jostling, um, horse trading, trying to position themselves for what is going to be a new system. Tim, you say a new system. Is it necessarily going to be a new system? We'll get into the details of the candidates in a moment, but is it necessarily going to be a big change? Oh, I think it will. I think it will because President Joko Widodo for the last decade or so, or will be the decade by the time the election is over, uh, has built a formidable alliance in the national legislature, which has at times comprised almost 80% of all the, the members of the legislature. And that has given his administration huge power. Now, we have to remember that in Indonesia, no individual party has ever won a majority under the post-Suharto democratic arrangements in elections. And so every president depends upon putting together some sort of alliance. Jokowi's probably been the most successful at doing that. Now, what we will see, the elections in February uh, will be followed by a sort of lame duck period, and the new president will only be sworn in later uh, in 2024 in September or October. And what we will then see is new alliances to support that administration coming into place. And between now and then, those alliances will be negotiated. And a critical part of those negotiations will be working out which parties support which candidates and therefore, ultimately, which parties are in the pole position when a winner is finally selected. So it's all about horse trading with elite alliances and identity politics play a critical part in that. Ian, how do you see that the political landscape and the lead up to the election? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree with Tim's analysis that, you know, sort of oligarchic clientelism really defines these kinds of extended negotiations that almost begin as soon as the previous election has finished. There's almost an immediate projection forward. And, and I think it's also revealing of how, you know, power is is understood at that level of politics. And it's it's much less as a, you know, kind of a, a tool to deliver uh, programs or policies or even, uh, heaven forbid, public goods and more an end in and of itself. So you see these different constellations of interests uh, that are consolidated within political parties or linked to them in these constant negotiations to try and consolidate their position within the ruling uh, administration through coalitions, through deals to get ministerial portfolios and other things. And and again, it's quite distinct in terms of the absence of any discussion of a, any programmatic approach, any sort of ideological distinction or distinct policy direction for the country. It's really around... Uh, the personalities of potential candidates. And that's really because it's just about winning at that level uh, of politics. Uh, And so that's why it sort of extends on for so long because a lot of parties are just looking and they're constantly gauging polls, uh, looking at where they may try and align themselves and and the kind of deals going on at that sort of level. Sorry, I was just going to jump in, Ali, and say that I think Ian's absolutely right. These elections, whether they're for the president or for legislatures across the country, are not really about policies. Policies are a marginal issue. There's very little difference between candidates' platforms, and we saw that in the last election between Jokowi and Prabowa. They agreed on most things. The only policy theme that really gets 
much traction uh, questions of corruption and, and frankly no one does well on that um the big issue really is about identities and loyalties religious ethnic regional party uh individual personalities this is because large groups of indonesian voters can be relied on to vote for particular parties for example bali is a a PDIP stronghold, West Java is a base for another party, PKS, East Java is a base for PKB and so on. So for presidential candidates and for the political parties, the real game is to secure party support, to build that alliance, both to get the nomination, but also to capture those large voting blocks, because it's not really about policy. And in fact, that's a point that we haven't made, Ian, to get the nomination. That's really what drives much of this horse trading, isn't it? Because the only party that can nominate in its own right is Jokowi's PDIP. Can you explain why that is and why it means this horse trading and these alliances are vital? So according to you know Indonesia's election laws, parties have to have at least 20% of seats in the legislature uh, or at least 25% of the total vote to be able to put up their own candidate. Uh, there's only one party that can do that, as you mentioned, the PDIP. And so for every other party, they have to look at forming coalitions around a particular candidate. And so these are pretty fluid. Uh, at this point in time, you've had uh, the National Democrats or NASDEM, as they're referred to, say their preferred candidate is Anis Baswedan, the former governor of Jakarta, and he was a former uh, minister in Jokowi's first presidential term, they're now sort of signalling that and looking for other parties to join a coalition that will go past that threshold. You will see constant horse trading, constant suggestions, constant speculated scenarios over the next six to 12 months, though I suspect most of the main nominations will come out within the next couple of months uh, around the kinds of coalitions that will form. And of course, as we were just saying, you know, parties, they want to back a candidate who's going to win for them, particularly smaller parties that might be in danger of losing uh, the minimal threshold to be able to be in parliament are particularly interested in trying to attach themselves to a bigger fish to politically survive. You talk there, Ian, about, you know, people will only back a winner. Uh, if we go through some of the candidates, and, and Tim, if I can come to you now, and let's start with the PDIP, because that question of backing a winner is particularly pertinent. We seem to have a choice for the PDIP, as we said in the introduction, of the daughter of the chair, Megawati Sakano, and that's Puan Maharani, who is also at the moment the Speaker of the Indonesian Parliament. And we also have the Governor of Central Java, Ganja Pranowo. Uh, one is far more popular than the other. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Gunjar is at the moment leading the stakes of the three main contenders, uh, himself, Anis Baswedan and Prabowo Subianto. So Gunjar is the most popular, but Megawati is not enthusiastic about Gunjar. She sees him as a rival for her family's control of PDIP, which she sees as a vehicle for the Sukarno family. And she runs PDIP ruthlessly with an iron fist and has a history of disposing of anybody, particularly non-members of the family, who might threaten her position as chair of the party. Megawati has been a political survivor and a hugely successful politician. She was an opposition leader to Suharto uh, under the new order. She survived that to become the leader of the, the biggest party in Indonesia. She was president for a while and she is not willing to cede her position in Indonesia to any rival. So Ganja is a, a member of her party, but a potential rival. 
So she's very cautious about him, even though he's the most popular candidate. She'd prefer her daughter to be the candidate, but her daughter has very little chance of success. She's probably the most unpopular of all the the candidates who've been named. So what she's doing is holding off. She's waiting to see what the alternatives are. She has plenty of options. She could pick a candidate from her own party or none, or she could support a candidate from another party. Her decision will be vital to the outcome of the race for 2024 because hers is the only party that can nominate on its own and it controls a huge block of solid votes and will likely continue to do so. If you look at the polls now, PDIP is way ahead of all the other parties for the legislative election. So she's a key player. Her decision will be vital and there's no real advantage for her in jumping now to nominate a candidate. She's waiting garner maximum possible concessions to ensure her party's and her family's power and influence in the next term. However, if she doesn't give her to support to Gunja, and she and Gunja do not get on well, then Gunja's prospects will be severely damaged because he would be seen as having no key party support. It would have to cobble together an alliance at short notice, which would be very difficult. There's also speculation that Megawati may be waiting because she is considering nominating the outgoing uh, head of the armed forces, General Andika Prakasa, who is a son-in-law of a very well-known intelligence figure, General Hendro Priono. If she nominates him, either for president or as a vice presidential running mate for her daughter, Puan, that would upset a lot of the speculation and planning. Now, that may not happen. But this sort of speculation is emerging because Megawati is waiting to garner the best possible outcome for her group of interests. And that, of course, makes everything else very, very difficult for all the others, none of whom at the moment can rely on the solid block that PDIP offers. Ian, how do you see Gunjar's prospects? And and I guess if he is not nominated by the PDIP and he did go elsewhere, Tim was making the point that you then would have, you know, he would have far less support because the PDIP is the single biggest block of votes. But is there not also a, a potential outcome that he would split the PDIP's vote? That is possible. You know, my, my strong sense is that uh, he will end up being their candidate. If you saw just last week, Jokowi held a rally for his volunteer groups, the Ralawan, who were very important to his, particularly his election in 2014, and it have remained a sort of a loyalist support base. He semi-cryptically referred to people choosing a next president who has white hair. That suggests that they spent a lot of time thinking about what's best for the people. And Everyone interpreted that uh, immediately as a nod to Ganja Pranoa, who has uh, white hair. Um, I think the interesting thing that's sort of happening is if you want to try and look for some kind of uh, democratic dynamic, party oligarchs such as Megawati really just can't choose the candidate that they want. They have to listen to who's going to be able of winning the election. Uh, I think Nasdem, who's also run by an oligarch but a media tycoon, that's uh, Surya Palo, has set the tone by by signalling they're going to nominate Anis Baswedan, who is relatively popular. And I think many people would see it, you know, a Baswedan versus Ganja Pranol election as perhaps quite an interesting one. So you have these internal tensions within parties between party oligarchs who want to keep them as vehicles for their own family or their own sets of interests, and then the tension point uh, of 
having actually popular candidates. And now most popular candidates aren't coming from party hierarchies. They're coming from popular regional leaders. Anis Baswedan as, as a relatively popular governor of Jakarta, Ganja Pranowo as a popular uh, governor of central Java. And this is sort of a trend that to some extent challenges party oligarchs uh, control. So I, I think that's interesting. And, and also the fact that Jokowi himself uh, is now suggesting that he's going to back Ganja. You know, he's remained highly popular despite the issues of his administration. He has personally remained very popular. Uh, and so there'll be a strong incentive for any candidate to get his endorsement and probably to be seen as largely a continuation of Jokowi. And certainly talking to people in political elite circles in Jakarta, many refer to Ganjar as Jokowi 2.0. There's there's a real sense that he's going to be seen as a continuation and that's a strong uh, electoral endorsement in and of itself. So really it falls back in the court of, of Megawati and, and other party oligarchs to what extent they want to dig their heels in to get their preferred people or what to what extent they're going to have to concede and, and choose the candidate who looks like they could actually win. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that Mega did the same thing last time or yes. with Jokowi when Jokowi was uh, the popular candidate. She was famously unenthusiastic about Jokowi and waited a very long time before she agreed that he would be the PDIP candidate. And that was followed by a, a period also of tension in their relationship as Megawati on a number of occasions publicly humiliated Jokowi even after she'd been elected to assert her authority. So, I mean, she might do the same thing again as she did then, which is to wait for a very long time and grudgingly accept Gunjar as the PDIP candidate and uh, then extract fealty from him. Um, but on the other hand, if she doesn't, that puts Gunjar in a lot of difficulty. Is Megawati, Tim, is Megawati all-powerful here? I mean, Ian made the reference there to the fact that there has to be a nod to who can actually win. If Megawati chose to stick with her daughter, chose to try and continue the dynasty, and as opposed to listening to the polls, is that her choice and her choice alone? Well, it probably is in PDIP because she, as I said, has enormous control over that party personally. But Megawati is a canny and strategic politician. People often dismiss her, which is a big mistake because she's extremely successful. And Megawati will wait, keep her cards close to her chest and will probably make a decision in the end that she perceives as most likely to deliver a strong, powerful position of authority to her party and therefore to her. That's what she did with Jokowi and it played out brilliantly for her. She's likely to do the same again. If she abandons Puan, it will be reluctantly, but she's a very successful politician and I expect she will in the end make the decision that she sees as most likely to confirm the power of PDIP, which, as I say, is the most popular party by a long shot. And you've also made the point, Tim, that the uh, vice presidential role is quite key in all this horse trading. We've sort of skipped over uh, Proboa Subianto, the current defence minister. He has run twice and failed twice. <laughs> Well, actually, he's 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 run twice as president, but before that, he ran as a vice presidential candidate on the ticket with Megawati in 2009. So is he electable, Tim? Well, I think he is electable. Um, Prabowo is an extremely controversial figure. He's the, uh, the person who's failed to get into the palace three times, but he is still a contender. The first time around, he only lost to Jokowi by about five or six percent. It was a bigger margin the second time, but he's 
charismatic. He's got near universal name recognition in Indonesia. He's the defence minister who's remained in the spotlight. Jokowi did endorse a whitehead politician, obviously Ganja, but he also has said publicly that now it's Prabowo's turn, apparently endorsing Prabowo as well. I think Jokowi is playing the field a little here. But Prabowo does have a terrible human rights record. Human Rights Watch says he oversaw a massacre in the early 1980s of 300 people in East Timor. He's been accused of human rights abuses in Papua. He was um, played a role, many believe, in crackdowns on pro-democracy rights activists in Jakarta at the fall of the Suharto regime. He's been denied visas to Australia and the United States in the past. So he has a, a very dark record. But Indonesia is a very young electorate now. Uh, this all happened 25 years ago. Most Indonesians are no longer exercised by those, which I think they should be, but they're less concerned about those issues now. So he is clearly a player. He, at the moment, has an alliance with a party, PKB, the National Awakening Party, which is affiliated to the largest Muslim mass organisation in the world, Nadatul Ulama, which means that his combination of his Nationalist Party, Garindra, and this mainstream moderate Muslim party, secular nationalist, moderate Muslim, is the same sort of political mix that secured Jokowi a victory in the most recent election. So he is a player. I suppose it's also possible that Megawati might back Prabowo, although at the moment I think that's a little unlikely. But you certainly can't write Prabowo off. He's uh, he's certainly proven to be uh, the political chameleon. Yeah, he, he was the son-in-law of Suharto once upon a time. So, yeah, he's another new order survivor like Megawati. And Tim, are we likely to see candidates we haven't talked about? I mean, we also touched on Anise Buzz-Whedon. We've got Ridwan Kamil, who's the West Java governor, who's been mentioned in dispatches. Is there anyone likely to come from left field or that is just not how this system works? Uh, well, yes. I think I mentioned earlier that there are rumours that Megawati might be waiting for the current head of the armed forces to retire and would consider nominating him. I, I don't know how much weight to put on that, but... I think what we are involved in is behind-the-scenes haggling involving blocks of votes, vast sums of money, political alliances, trying to get over that critical 20%. And to be honest, almost anything could happen between now and September, October next year when the presidential candidates have to be locked in place. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. Edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Indonesian political observers Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University and Professor Tim Lindsay of Melbourne Law School. We're talking about the run-up to the 2024 presidential election in Indonesia. Ian, we've mentioned a couple of times here that this various horse trading and alliances and, and uh, candidate jostling is not about uh, policy and it's not really even about ideology. It's more about loyalties and identity politics. But can you sort of look at candidates and put them into a left or right category in the same way that you can in places like Australia or the US or the UK? The simplest answer would be no. I don't think you can at that level. 
if you're looking for more policy-driven politics, I think you need to look further down uh, in terms of regional elections and to a certain extent local uh, legislative elections where you do see just because of the scale, uh, there's more need to be receptive to constituencies on the ground. Uh, and in that respect, you do see distinct policy approaches. This is interesting insofar as it translates into the trend now of presidential candidates coming with a background, not just as part of you know uh, the networks of party oligarchs, but with experience in actually governing you know, Ganja Pranowo, again, has been a governor of uh, Central Java, uh, not without his controversies, but certainly some popularity in terms of, of what he's done. Uh, Anis Bazwaydan, uh, again, has just finished his period as governor of Jakarta, where he did have some distinct policy approaches that were linked to the electoral dynamics that got him elected in the first place. So, for example, he developed political contracts with particular constituent groups in Jakarta, particularly urban poor groups, uh, who were very keen to have a governor who wouldn't engage in mass evictions such as the previous governor, Ahok, had done. And Anis made a political contract with those groups to not do that and, and largely carried through. When you look at the records of some of these potential presidential candidates who are coming from a background as regional leaders, there are distinct policy approaches I don't know if you'd categorise them on a left or, or right spectrum because when it comes down to it, they're usually about brokered relationships or even clientelistic relationships with particular constituent groups that will provide benefits for those groups. So I, I, I've never been comfortable with the left-right divide in Indonesian politics because it, it doesn't really help to inform us too much. Yeah, one of the strange things about Indonesian politics is that there's really no left. The annihilation in the, in the massacres of 65 to 66 of the Indonesian Communist Party, then the third largest in the world, has sort of led to this vacuum on the left. And the role of sort of progressive leftist politics is not taken up by any of the political parties. It really exists in civil society. So civil society largely sits outside political party activity, um, but it, it runs that progressive left critique of government and is often consulted by government when it needs to develop reforms and so forth. And one of the factors that contributed to Jokowi's success in the past, particularly in his first election, was his ability to harness support from civil society, that sort of left side of society, not of politics, but getting their sort of networks behind him. They, I think, were very disappointed in the end and felt betrayed by him. I think of the three candidates that we've discussed, Prabowo, Ganja and Anis, really probably only Ganja would be able to engage with those groups. Although on the topic of civil society, the other part of civil society that politicians try to engage with and get support from is, of course, religious organisations, Muslim groups and so forth. And yet religious parties have not been particularly successful, have they? No, they haven't. Um, they've been quite unsuccessful, really, because although around 85 to 90% of, of Indonesians are Muslim, they don't vote along the lines of religion any more than people do, for example, in Australia. So um, the religious parties haven't done well, but the mass religious organisations and even the smaller religious organisations have their own loyal followers, and they have been players in the political alliances, Prabowo, in the last couple of elections, particularly the last one, emerged as the preferred candidate of the Islamist groups who were very strongly supportive of him during the campaign. He quite quickly abandoned them after the election in order to become Minister for Defence in the government 
of Jokowi, the very government that these Islamist groups had attacked so aggressively shortly beforehand. Well, I suppose what I'm trying to say is civil society is outside the political sphere, but it can offer sources of policy in the case of the sort of secular civil society groups and sources of political backing for Muslim groups that politicians, particularly during campaign period, try to exploit with identity politics. Can we just stay on the, the religious vote for a minute? In We also saw, of course, Jokowi's running mate in 2019 being a conservative cleric. How important is it, even if the big Muslim parties are not necessarily successful in themselves, how important is endorsement and support from religious parties to the candidates? I think it's not insignificant. It's obviously preferred by any candidate they're going to get broad endorsement, particularly from the biggest organisations, and that in Indonesia's context means Nadatul Ulama and uh, Muhammadiyah as the two main large mass Islamic organisations. Nadatul Ulama, uh, of course, the, the Vice President, Ma'ruf Amin, he's, he's from that organisation, uh, and also the current Minister for Religion, Yaqut Khalil uh, Kumas, is also from Nadatul Ulama, and they've really benefited from the Jokowi administration, who's drawn them in and always they're referred to as often sort of characterised as, as the face of moderate Islam, which I think is probably quite generous considering it, it's such a big organisation, has deeply conservative factions uh, within it. But nonetheless, uh, Jokowi's sort of used them as a counter to the polarisation that merged in 2019 around much more conservative uh, fundamentalist groups that Prabowo kind of strategically deployed as part of, in the end, an unsuccessful uh, strategy. So groups such as Enul have really, I think, benefited from the Jokowi administration. And so they'll be keen to endorse for someone, I think, who wants to continue that kind of relationship. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you have people such as Anis Baswedan, and for many, particularly uh, progressives uh, and on the left, probably will never really forgive him for his rise to power on the back of the Ahok controversies uh, in Jakarta, which saw the previous governor of Jakarta charged with blasphemy and going and to jailed. and going mm. to jail. And many felt that uh, Buzzway done really quite cynically and instrumentally rode on the back of that movement, which was, you know, really quite corrosive to Indonesian society to become governor. And so you you've already seen since the National uh, Democrats sort of said he was their preferred candidate that uh, those networks supportive of Jokowi or also still supportive of the former governor Ahok have been quick to go in the attack to say that Buzwaydan is is the identity politics guy and he's divisive and we can't have him. And Buzwaydan is going to have a hard time to kind of recreate his image among certain constituents in the country, particularly in East Indonesia, where you know there are large populations of Christians, uh, Hindus, uh, non-Muslim minorities where many would also link him to that particular period. So, you know, these things will still continue to be important. The endorsement of, of a group such as Enu is, is seen as fundamental to being able to win in East Java and to a certain extent Central Java. And just because of the weight of numbers of people that live there, that's utterly crucial to winning the presidency in Indonesia as well. So what do people vote for? What, what does drive uh, voters to go one way or another once someone's actually got pre-selection or got, I shouldn't say pre-selection, it's a very Australian term, once someone's actually been nominated, they have to be voted for. What drives voters? Tim? Well, I, th I think there's a range of things. Yes, certainly some people are moved or 
place weight on the anti-corruption and clean governance reform credentials of candidates. Jokowi exploited that very successfully, particularly in his first election, and I expect that will be an advantage for Gunjar. But as I said earlier, there are large blocks of voters who associate with a particular political party or with a particular religion or some other form of identity that are largely unshakable. These are core blocks of voters that can be regionally defined, as as Ian pointed out, East Java, PKB, Bali, PDIP, PKS, West Java, and so forth. And the parties can rely on those identity groups, those loyalty groups, for a certain percent of the vote. Beyond that, there are, I don't think you could really call them swinging voters, um, but you could call them voters who might be interested in the credentials of individual candidates. I think that Christian voters, for example, would be very unlikely ever to vote for Anis Baswedan, but they are a tiny minority. In U, Ulama members are likely to vote along the lines of the ticket that has the NU figure on it, and so on. Again, it's really not very much about policy content and not even very much about ideology. It's about loyalties and identities. And those rusted on blocks that you talk about that you know aren't going anywhere, it's still a very, well, it is a very young electorate in Indonesia. So is that changing? So as voters get younger, they become more fluid? Well, I don't think so, because if you look at PDIP's vote, if anything, it may even increase. It's certainly not going to decrease. Uh, so a lot of the percentages have not shifted greatly. New parties come into the system, such as Garindra, Prabowo's party, but they really pick up blocks of existing alliances or existing loyalties rather than shifting them in particular. What I think is significant about the young vote is that it has increased interest in clean government credentials or at least the appearance of them because there's a big difference between credentials as a clean skin candidate and whether you actually are one. And the second factor about the youth, relative youth of the electorate is that they have a very short political memory. So the concerns about the behaviour of political parties or of individuals in the past under the 32-year authoritarian rule of Suharto's new order is much less significant to many of the young voters, some of whom were born after that regime and collapsed. I think there's a bit of historical amnesia in the political system now. Ian, what do you see as driving voters? But also, Tim's talked about corruption. What about democracy? Democracy in the sense of weakening democratic institutions. And we've seen protests over things like the proposed changes to the criminal code. We've seen the weakening of the Anti-Corruption Commission. There's a list of things that you could refer to. Do those things come to the fore on polling day? In terms of democracy, yeah, I haven't seen anything, including surveys that have been done to suggest that that's a real driver of people's voting choices. That generally, I think, most Indonesians remain committed to the idea of, of having elections. But the, the kind of analysis that many scholars of Indonesia have given over Jokowi's administration of democratic decline, uh, of slides towards illiberalism, uh, etc., I don't think outside of specific blocks, such as university students, urban intellectuals and other, I don't think that's really a key driver of voting. Again, I think there's always a, a focus almost overwhelmingly on the presidential elections. But if you're looking at 
contestations of ideas and policies that deliver to particular constituencies, you need to look at the grassroots, I, I think, in terms of you know, elections for parties or regents, uh, governors to a certain extent, that you'll see more receptiveness and politicians are regularly engaged in polling about what kind of issues will get them into office. W- whether that involves a substantive commitment to that is, is another thing entirely, but at the very least there is a perception that they have to listen to a certain extent. And issues around the economy in particular, you know, you have people really uh, uneasy about Indonesia's economic future, rising costs of living, the removal of fuel subsidies, which has, of course, increased costs of living through the roof, uh, and a younger generation who are facing uh, really uncertain and precarious job markets. No candidate really has a clear plan to deal with that, but I do think that those things will be in people's minds uh, and hopefully, trying to be optimistic, hopefully might shape the debates as we, we get closer to the elections in 2024 to some extent. And Ian, when we look regionally, there's another issue that we haven't talked about, which I know that you've been focusing on, and that's the number of stand-in bureaucrats who have been appointed by the Jokowi regime and who are filling roles that should be filled by elected officials. Can you explain that and and indeed what the potential impact of that is? Sure. Well, this is a strange feature of this current political cycle uh, in 2016, revisions were made to the electoral laws in Indonesia, which established that all regional elections throughout the country would be held in 2024. And they're going to be held in November 2024, once the presidential and legislative elections have been completed. The issue that this creates is that many of the regional elections have been staggered every couple of years. So it means that there are large numbers of provinces and regencies throughout the country which have already faced a situation where their elected leader, their term of office has ended. Now, rather than holding a local election to elect a new leader, this legislation means that they're holding off until 2024. So you have interim leaders. Uh, Already there's around 101 around the country, and by the end of next year there'll be a further 169 uh, and most of these are appointed directly by the Ministry of, of Home Affairs. So there's been some concern around the extent to which these interim appointments, there's nominally meant to be a consolidative process with uh, regional parliaments, but the reality on the ground has been that often these are handpicked by the ministry, in some cases the president uh, himself, that this is being done in a way to try and establish favourable conditions on the ground for the government heading towards 2024. So in the case of Jakarta is an interesting one because, of course, uh, Anis Baswedan is a likely presidential candidate. His five-year term of office ended on the 16th of October of this year, and he's been replaced by an interim leader, uh, Heru Hartono. Uh, Heru Hartono's background, he was the mayor of North Jakarta, appointed by Jokowi when Jokowi was governor of Jakarta, He was also Ahok's preferred running mate in the governorial elections, but was pushed out by the PDIP uh, because of their preferred party choice. And he was then made uh, head of the presidential secretariat by Jokowi up until he was handpicked by Jokowi to replace Anis Baswedan as governor. With full powers? Yes, he has full powers. So he's able to change policy direction and he's already intimated that he will do so and made very clear overtures to the Ahok administration in some policy directions. But of course, he doesn't have a political mandate. He wasn't elected, but he's going to be in office for 
two and a half years, roughly, which is half of a full elected period. And this is going on throughout the country. You know, there'd been a couple of challenges to the legislation in the constitutional court, uh, one uh, by a regent in Sulawesi whose term of office will be cut short by one year because he was uh, only elected to office in 2020, uh, and another by the JRMK, which is a network of urban poor groups who made the constitutional argument that interim leaders appointed by government fundamentally violated their constitutional rights as citizens to have an elected representative, and it was it was thrown out of court. You know, there's a concern that there are patterns emerging of strategic appointments being put, particularly in in what will be hotly contested places. Jakarta, of course, is is always a key battleground for the whole country. It sets the tone for the whole country in terms of political contestation. The Jokowi has put one of his his man in the governor uh, seat, and he's already rolling back slowly at this point in time. But we'll we we'll need to wait and see. He's rolling back some of the policies that were implemented by Anis Baswedan. There's a sense, certainly to people I speak in Jakarta, that he may be tasked with a role sort of undermining some of those policy legacies, particularly considering that you know Anis will likely campaign on his record as governor of Jakarta as part of a presidential run. In the constitutional court challenge that was brought by the urban poor groups, you know, they went so far as they said that this is a this is a coup, this is a governmental coup to install government-appointed leaders, also considering that many within the administration have been quite vocal in questioning the value of regional elections. Uh, the Minister of Home Affairs, for example, Tito Carnivan, has been very open and vocal in articulating a view that regional elections are costly, they facilitate corruption, they're destabilising in terms of social conflict, uh, and that Indonesia should reconsider returning to a system, and it's, it's similar to the New Order system, where regional heads aren't elected directly, but they're appointed by regional parliaments. So there is concern in some quarters that this interim leader f- phenomena, which is sort of an anomaly produced by this legislation in 2016, feeds into broader kind of attacks on the integrity of, of the electoral system in terms of having elected leaders who are accountable to their constituents. And Tim, as Ian says, it is part of a long-standing move towards centralisation, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think there's a consensus among Indonesia observers that Indonesia's democratic system has experienced backsliding or regression under Jokowi. Many people have pointed to the Anti-Corruption Commission and to the Constitutional Court, which can review legislation, the first court in modern Indonesia that's been able to do that those two institutions as litmus tests of the democratic system. And we've seen under Jokowi the Anti-Corruption Commission being stripped of a lot of its power, being placed under the authority of an oversight commission that can prevent it using the wiretaps and so forth that it's used so successfully in the past and which many suspect of leaking. Uh, And we've seen just recently the Constitutional Court, a judge in the Constitutional Court who the National Legislature felt wasn't protecting its interests, being dismissed and replaced by one that the legislature would prefer. This is highly controversial because, of course, the role of the constitutional court is precisely, among others, to strike out legislation it considers unconstitutional. And the legislature who nominated one of these judges took the position that by doing that, by carrying out his statutory and constitutional role that judge had somehow betrayed the legislature and 
the president was willing to see him removed. And many feel that the effect of that is to intimidate and chaos the constitutional court. So if you look at those two institutions as indicators of the existence of the sort of checks and balances and oversight entities that are very important for a functioning separation of powers system in a, in a liberal democratic model that you'd have to be very concerned about the current state of Indonesia. So if you accept that those two institutions have been significantly damaged and that there is an effective return at least on a temporary basis to the new order notion of central appointment of local government officials um heads of local government these are all yet more steps back towards something more closely resembling the new order system of suharto than the liberal democratic model that so many aspired to and thought they were introducing after suharto's fall could i just add there i think i think this historical amnesia issue is troubling in so far as i mean we only have to think back to 2014 where a coalition within parliament led by prabowo in fact passed legislation that effectively dissolved regional elections regional elections were only saved when then president yudhoyono issued a presidential decree so you know within parliament itself within the administration there are groups who are you are deeply hostile to elections uh, themselves gurindra which is prabowo's political party is very explicit saying that it wishes a return to the original 1945 constitution and of course the 1945 constitution itself is not democratic it was only amendments to it in 1999 2002 that that consolidated a democratic electoral system so you know it's often sort of said that that we see this kind of a liberalism but that the electoral system itself is relatively solid i i'd question that i think there there are still serious efforts to undermine uh what has been a key achievement of post 1998 indonesia which has been you know a decentralized electoral system uh, and that we certainly shouldn't assume that there won't be further uh, attacks from from the top you know in terms of people within the current administration on the electoral system i mean i agree with what ian's just said and i'd go a bit further and say that the way that elections and election financing is now set up creates a huge flaw in the electoral system that actually contributes to the power of oligarchs and encourages corruption in government which in turn weakens the whole electoral system just let's let me explain this for a second campaigning is extremely expensive in Indonesia you know 17,000 plus islands 38 provinces 270 million people and the elections are fiercely contested because they determine the distribution of power now state funding for political parties is negligible it's virtually useless it usually works out to only around about 1% of the real costs of campaigning and this forces parties and candidates to look elsewhere to fund these very very expensive campaigns that they run. Now the two main sources of campaign funding are therefore the candidates themselves who according to some surveys need to stump up 85% of their costs and political parties which contribute around 15%. There are limits on campaign donations and reporting requirements and sanctions but these are routinely avoided. with only a fraction of donations actually reported and and cash payments being used routinely to avoid detection so prosecutions are very very rare there's also no real effective mechanism no mechanism that really works for controlling donations made to political parties outside the campaign period and so the 
parties often demand that people who want to run for election have to pay the political party in order to be selected. The Anti-Corruption Commission, for example, says that if you want to run for the national legislature, you're probably going to have to pay your party around $700,000, the equivalent of $700,000 just to be selected. So it gets worse still because during the election campaigns, many voters expect candidates to routinely hand out cash gifts um, and even more expensive gifts such as motorbikes and air conditioners and, and so on in order to be able to speak at rallies and so forth, need, need to give these sort of gifts to, to local figures. The result of all this is that money politics becomes deeply entrenched in the Indonesian political system. First of all, candidates have to be cashed up, so either you're very wealthy or you don't get to run, or more often, you borrow money to run to such an extent that if you are not elected, you're quite often bankrupt. And secondly, parties, in order to compete in this system, have to depend on very wealthy tycoons in order to bankroll them, which means the tycoons virtually own the party. What this all means... He who has the money has the power. That's right. And that means we could easily point to parties in Indonesia that are effectively owned by that sort of a figure. Now, this means that once you're elected, you've got to recoup the huge expenses of campaigning and and the parties are indebted also to tycoons who want their money back. And this just creates a recipe for corruption such that many legislators just won't vote unless they're paid money to do so. They won't even vote for their own party's platform or, or bill unless they're paid to do it. So the way the campaign funding system works entrenches the, the corruption. And that means for the parties, for example, demand from the president who they nominate, who they support during the campaign, a position that will allow them to recoup their wealth. And so cabinet positions are usually divided into wet and dry, a wet cabinet position is one that is a great source of income for the political party. And so it goes. That means that powerful groups get to own or buy the political process and they in turn get to decide who the future candidates will be. And this is a fundamental problem that we now see playing out as the parties and individuals jostle ahead of the next elections to choose their candidates. And against that background, Ian, you talked before about having the hope that this election, you know, will provide a future vision for Indonesia. But against that background, as Tim has just described the landscape, is that hope misplaced, do you think? Just to add one point to what Tim was saying before, it, I think it's worth noting as well that the prevalence of money politics and corruption within the system in that way is also being used by those advocating for a removal of elections entirely. So someone like Tito Karnivan is the Minister of Home Affairs. He's a former National Police Chief. Uh, Bambang Susetio, who's a senior figure in Golkar, have all been very vocal saying, well, you know, the electoral system is rife with corruption and rather using that as a, as a means to reform the system, say, well, we should just do away with elections and have it a system where they're directly appointed by us. So there's a bit of a double bind there as well where the prevalence of corruption is being used as a means of attacking electoral systems uh, as well. Returning to your point, I think you know it will come down to the extent to which the backers of particular candidates try and set the tone. You know, if I hypothesise that we had an election between Ganja Pranowo uh, and Anis Baswedan, I think their individual tendencies would be to discuss 
ideas because they're both certainly Buzzword. You know, he's an intellectual and he, he has distinct ideas about how uh, government should operate. Ganja Pranol is more Jokowi-like, less intellectual, but certainly has some visions of things he'd like to do. If they were left unhampered, I think you could have a contestation where there were at least some ideas, big ideas about uh, visions of where Indonesia is going to go, um, whether their party backers and other groups will allow them to do that or will try and set the tone along identity politic lines or other lines which aren't substantive is something that remains to be seen. I think you know there's there's a likelihood that identity politics will be a part of the elections, but I also think that there are some younger voters who are a bit tired of it. It reached its kind of zenith in 2019. A lot of people did notice that it was cynically deployed because, of course, Prabowo, who mobilised you know radical Islamic groups like the Islamic Defenders Front as part of his campaign, dropped them like a hot potato as soon as he was offered a ministership uh, as a defence minister. And I think many people noted, well. You know, these people at the top don't believe this stuff. I don't think you'd see the same fervor or intensity of, of identity politics campaignings you've seen in the past, if for no other reason that I don't think it's perceived as not the same winning formula that might have been in the past. Tim? Yeah, I mean, it's good to be hopeful and optimistic, of course. <laughs> I need to counter uh, you, Tim. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're right, Ian, to do that. <laughs> but uh, I think that by the time the candidates are chosen, they will have become so compromised by the process that in the end, whatever the debate in the election, whoever is chosen will be locked into this system, like it or not. And, and that's what we saw with Jokowi. If we want to be charitable, we can imagine Jokowi as a person with high ideals during the election, or we can see him as cynically manipulating those sorts of values. But however we put it, most of the Ideals that people associated with Jokowi, particularly during his first election, have gone nowhere in his two terms. And I think that reflects the difficulty any politician in Indonesia will have in acting freely within this system of money politics and political alliances that eventually usually compromises them and in a sense traps them. I remember back to 2012 when Jokowi you know, was elected as governor of Jakarta, and he was elected on the back of a pretty radical program. He he talked about you know giving informal settlements, you know, land ownership rights, which is a fundamentally radical approach towards land ownership in Indonesia. Uh, but he never, you know, he never battled for any of those things. To win and make those kind of transformations, you have to take on powerfully entrenched interests in Indonesia. And Jokowi, I think, one of the kind of defining features of his political career has been to give rhetorical overtures to these kind of progressive ideas, but he's never taken on a battle. He's not a fighter insofar as he wants to create adversaries and try and prevail. Uh, he's rather a figure of compromise. And in the end, he's, I think that's why to so many people he's been so profoundly disappointing as a president. Again, reiterating Tim's point, again, you know, I, I think Anis Baswedan and Ganja Pranol have ideas uh, but the extent to which they're going to be able to offer any ideas that may be seen as threatening to the coalitions of interest that are backing their campaigns, uh, that's going to compromise them significantly. You know, I think that um, a lot of Indonesian politicians remember what happened to a president who directly confronted the elites yes. and pushed hard on progressive ideas, namely Abdurrahman Wahid, who uh, was impeached and removed yes. from office and replaced by Megawati, 
ironically, once an opposition leader, but a person well and truly ensconced in the elite now. It's not the only country where self-preservation is a powerful political motivator, it would seem. Ian and Tim, there is so much more to talk about, and no doubt we will uh, between now and the next presidential election in 2024 in Indonesia. Thank you both so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thanks, Ali. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Our guests have been Professor Tim Lindsay of Melbourne Law School and Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 30th of November 2022. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Calvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2022, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.